Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The science shows that beyond a certain threshold of overwork, actually makes us less productive, we make more mistakes, we actually become less empathic and less creative. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. We're excited to be bringing you this important conversation with psychologist, burnout expert, author and leadership coach, Dr. Jacinta Jimenez. We've actually known Jacinta for some years and followed her great work with keen interest. So it's so exciting to see her latest achievement with the release of her new book, The Burnout Fix. Jacinta's broken new ground with this book, which presents burnout in a way we've never seen before, and all of it is science-backed. Jacinta studied and obtained her doctorate in psychology from Stanford University, where she focused on peak performance, motivation and behaviour change. And had a pretty stellar academic record from all accounts. What makes her so interesting to speak to and learn from is that Jacinta's also more recently spent several years in the tech startup world, helping to build a coaching at scale business called BetterUp in San Francisco. And we'll talk about that in the interview. We sure will. In this episode and in her new book, Jacinta deconstructs burnout and you'll hear how her own two burnout experiences changed and shaped her career. The telltale signs of burnout may not be what you think they are, how the focus of her work has been influenced by being one of the few Latino women in her field. And you'll learn about a model you can use to help prevent burnout happening to you. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the passionate and learned Dr. Jacinta Jimenez. Jacinta, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hi, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's our absolute pleasure. We've been talking for, oh, actually many years, really, and thinking about having you on the show, but now seems the absolute perfect moment. So Jacinta, I I think you've listened to a few of our interviews before, so you kind of know what's coming, but I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, if you were at a dinner party and somebody asked you to describe what you do today, what would you say? I know I love this question. I'm such a big fan of this of your podcast, so I'm so excited to be here, and I love that question. So I thought about it a little bit because I knew that this was going to be <laughs> so I'm cheating a little bit, but I would answer it. I would say that I, I synthesize scientific research and apply it towards the betterment of individuals, 
people, programs, and technology. Wow. And we are going to explore that in a lot more detail as we go on. But before we do, we want to really go right back to your roots and to understand the young Jacinta. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Santa Cruz, California. It's a coastal town two miles south of San Francisco. And so I grew up by the ocean in a lot of nature on an apple orchard. It sounds really idyllic. What was your childhood like? Um, My childhood was really interesting. So both my parents are educators. So they started an after-school enrichment program focused on character development. And so this was back when that wasn't as common. So things like social justice, communication, they would have the children learn how to do public speaking and run for office. So teaching kind of leadership skills early on and also about how to give back to community. So I think that was a big influence for me early on growing up, having that modeled and being around that kind of messaging frequently. Yeah, how inspiring. And what did you think you wanted to do for a career when you were growing up? So I never, ever thought I'd be a psychologist or anything that I'm doing now. I thought I was going to be a dancer. That's all I really ever wanted to be. I didn't have a backup plan. So I ended up burning out as a dancer and that led me to my career in psychology, but it definitely was not what I would have expected if someone went back when I was like, let's say 17 or 16 and asked me what I was going to do for my life. I would have predicted that I would be on stage dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it would be great to hear the story of how you burnt out with dance and how that led you to right to today, in fact, but maybe, you know, just briefly, if you could share that with us. Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to dance under two soloists who danced directly under Martha Graham and then auditioned and moved by myself to New York City. I had never been before, moved into the Alvin Ailey, I mean, the Fordham University dorms because I I got it accepted into study at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater's intensive program and was loving it, but ended up dancing my way through a broken jaw dancing my way through a concussion. Oh my goodness. Dancing my way through mononucleosis, which is, it is a illness that causes tremendous fatigue. We call it glandular fever in Australia. Yep. No. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And then basically danced my way into burnout. And I was so, it was such a painful and confusing experience. I was very young, you know, because dancers are just young athletes and didn't quite know what was happening and ended up just feeling so disconnected from something I loved so deeply. Just my mind was kind of blown by this experience. Like how can you go from being so deeply passionate and engaged in something to just feeling very, very uninspired and disconnected from it. And I remember pausing and I had no backup plan. So I had to pause and take some time out and really reflect. And I remember those first few months watching my anxiety levels grow in the absence of constant motion and realized that I had mistook like most constant movement and motion for reflection of my passion and commitment to dance and realized, oh my gosh, resilience isn't about how you endure. It's how you replenish and recharge and and I was like, I need to study this. I need to figure out how, how this happens. And so I, I decided to start all over again in psychology, studying peak performance, motivation, and behavior change. 
Yeah, it's amazing though, isn't it? How, you know, when you have these moments of darkness and they feel like you're at the bottom, that they're the, your biggest learning moments. Absolutely. Yeah. I just so believe in that. Uh, the Buddha saying like no mud, no lotus or the saying every rose has a thorn or whatever shines bright also has a shadow. So there you are, you're studying psychology and in- indeed go on to do your doctorate. But at the same time, a major event happened in your life where I believe your brother became ill and you really had yet more learnings about resilience and burnout. Yeah, I, I, I'm one of the lucky people, quote unquote lucky, who had to have two burnout experiences to really understand <laughs> the whole how significant and complex and multifaceted burnout actually is. So, yeah, I was uh, in graduate school. So some time had gone by and I was prepping for my doctoral dissertation proposal and I had the chief of this adult psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine as my chair. And I was feeling imposter syndrome and really wrapped up in a lot of self-focus. And then all of a sudden I got this call from my mom and she's like, your brother, he's so sick and no idea what was going on. And, and I had to book my dad and I a flight, flew to hospital where my brother was living by where my brother was residing and told he only had a 45 chance of making it through the night, 45% chance. And it wow. was just just like, whoa, like everything's out, you know, your life kind of goes in slow motion almost. This is your only brother, right? And in his twenties. Only brother. Yeah. So it was just, just an incredible experience, but I saw my parents kind of fall apart and I'm like, well, I'm healthy. I'm strong. I can do this. So I, you know, my parents are self-employed running that school, that after school enrichment program. So if they stopped working to take care of my brother, my brother had a long road in recovery, like, you know, getting this breathing back, walking. And he he had a heart issue, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. His heart was failing. They had to do open heart surgery, but first they had to stabilize him before. It was really serious. He stayed in the ICU for quite some time. And so I said, well, I'll step up, you know, but I also said, well, but I'm not going to slow down in graduate school either because, you know, I'm, I'm one of the first people in my family to go to graduate school and get a doctorate. And so I, I tried to kind of work harder and work smarter, both for school while also flying down and trying to manage my brother's care. Cause it's a lot of moving pieces, the insurance, all these things to manage process the whole thing that was happening at the same time. And at first I was, it was going okay, but I noticed slowly, but surely I was becoming more cynical. I was feeling exhausted. I was canceling on friends. And then I tried to work smarter. So I tried to do productivity hacks and, and it just wasn't working. I felt like I was just failing. I couldn't be effective at what I was doing. And I had to drop out of this world renowned psychiatrist, David Burns, who's written the book, Feeling Good, that sold millions and millions of copies worldwide. And I was in his, one of the few people selected to be in his lab. And I had to drop out of that. And it was just like, what is happening? But I was able to catch it at that point before it went all the way over like Dan's did. But it took some time. It took a, a lot of time. But I did realize like, oh, you can't just lean on hard work or smart work if you're also just not taking care of yourself. You know, what about people who might say, yeah, but I'm much stronger than X or Y or U or whatever, and I don't need to do that? Yeah, I think before COVID, I would say, you know, people I'd work with, because I, I am 
you know, an executive coach, leadership coach. And I do, I will have to say before COVID, there was quite a few people who were like, well, that's kind of soft. It's just a nice to have or an afterthought. And what I would say to them is that the most important tool that you have to make an impact on this world is you. And if you fail to invest in that tool, especially as a leader of an organization, you're going to run the risk of damaging the very thing you, your people, your teams need to achieve your mission or make an impact on the world. Plus, the science just shows it. The science shows that beyond a certain threshold of overwork actually makes us less productive. We make more mistakes. We actually become less empathic and less creative. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because before we really dive into this, and I, we're absolutely going to, you touched on that these days you're an executive coach as well as an author, and we know you've also worked in very entrepreneurial startups, including one where we met you called BetterUp. What was it that made you shift from the path of, if you like, the pure medical version of psychology and get into the corporate world and in particular the startup world? Yeah, I love this question. I really, you know, I love clinical psychology and I love science. I'm a science geek and I love evidence-based intervention to help people live a healthy and full and meaningful life. That's kind of my personal mission in North Star. But I was seeing this gap where we have on one hand executive coaching that's mostly just leadership. And then we have clinical psychology, which is just helping people get back to baseline. And I was like, there's this gap. And I just think there's such a exciting opportunity to help emerging leaders, especially because I've worked with so many leaders who are like, gosh, I wish I learned all this stuff early on. So I didn't have to unlearn things and relearn new evidence-based skills. I, I wish I could have learned this earlier on. So to help people get coaching across all aspects of the organization, all levels of the organization, I think creates such profound change. And it's so exciting to see how technology can help provide a blended approach to enhancing people's personal and professional well-being. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And just as a disclaimer, we're actually, Greta and I are both uh, angel investors in BetterUp, which is the company you joined as the head of, well, actually, you I think you were in the founding team, weren't you? Yes, yes. Yeah. And the original team and helped scale the coaches all the way from three to, you know, 1500 around the globe. It's so fantastic. And it makes such a big impact for individuals, you know, it gives access to coaching to, to many, many more people than would normally have got it. How did you find moving from being like a clinical practitioner to working in a tech company? I loved the clinical space in academia. I worked at UCLA, and but I was missing this kind of creative piece. So I think I had found a lot of fulfillment and meaning in clinical psychology, but it wasn't quite all of it, I think. There's this very heavy creative side of me because of my dance background that I got to access when I went into technology and innovation. Did you have to find ways to sort of keep yourself from burning out though? Because the pace is so fast, isn't it? Yes, it's so fast. And luckily, by then I'd figured out, oh, I need to have a lot of support. I have a group of uh, professional women that we check in and keep each other accountable. I have a leadership coach. I also at times have worked with my therapist too, to make sure I'm taking care of my mental well-being. Not that long ago, so I think it's the last year or so, stepped back from full-time involvement with 
better up the sort of the coaching at scale venture. You're still very much involved on the science board there. But what prompted your decision to step back? I ended up becoming really sick. So I ended up having, it's called endometriosis and and really painful disease in which certain uterine tissue grows in different parts of the body. And I've had to endure about eight surgical procedures. And I knew, you know, this was back when I had maybe two surgeries and I was like, this isn't going to work. I have to practice what I preach. I have to step back and listen to my body and I have to take care of myself. But of course it led to silver linings because I guess in some way directly linked to that sort of space that you gave yourself to recover. Am I right in thinking that that must have also led to you being able to write your book? It is the silver lining. It gave me so much spaciousness to reflect. And the book is about these core capabilities that I've been honing and and working with my clients to hone that are all research-based. And if you had to give us a really sort of elevator summary of what your book is about, what would you say? Yeah. So it's about how to prevent burnout from happening in the first place. Burnout happens when our capacities as human beings are mismatched with the nature of our work. So it's not just about overworking to the point of exhaustion. That's a blanket kind of understanding of burnout. It's much more nuanced. There's actually kind of six mismatches between our capacities as humans and the nature of our work. And the reality is we are humans We are not machines, as I learned when I tried to dance nonstop, like a machine, didn't work. When I tried to, you know, be the hero for my family and do graduate school, that was like a machine denying the human parts of me. It didn't work. And so these are these five kind of core capabilities to keep your humanness strong to balance the nature of work. Well, it also talks about that, you know, it's not burnout isn't an individual problem. It's also a workplace problem. So how to help teams and leaders and organizations design an employee experience that uses the best in psychology to allow and inspire their people to lean into building out their core capacities. And there's like, it's a model. So I, I call it pulse because just like, your body thrives when your heart's healthy, your well-being and your vitality are strong when you have a strong personal pulse. And I wanted it to be pulse so that people could actually ask each other, how's your pulse today? Or how are you doing on your core capabilities? Instead of just saying, how are you doing? Can you just talk us briefly through what the pulse model is, what those letters stand for? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Pulse is an integrated model. It talks about the behavioral, cognitive, physical, social, and emotional parts of you. Because burnout's so complex, we can't just do it one-off. We can't just focus on physical and not take in behavioral. So the P is pace for performance, and that's just about boosting your professional growth and development in a way that doesn't drain you. The U is cognitive. Uh, It's tied to undo untidy thinking. So it's not about clearing your mind, but it's about how do we not buy into critical thinking and how do we look at things objectively so that we can make the best choices and respond to things in the best way possible. The L is physical. It's leveraged leisure, but it's talking about not so obvious things. So I I don't talk about sleep and exercise and nutrition because there's so many great books on that. I talk about things like how to create a healthy relationship with technology, how to use nature, how to uh, escape and have solitude and reflection time. And then the social piece is just about how to build a robust system of people for cognitive flexibility and adaptability. So breath 
belonging and, and how to set up boundaries. And then the E is evaluate effort. So how to, you know, get back control of your time and priorities by living by enduring principles, managing your energy, and also using your emotions as data and signals to tell you what, what's going to fill you and what's going to drain you. That's Pulse in a nutshell. Thank you. That's a great summary. Jacinta, you, you mentioned the six mismatches. Can you tell us what they are? Yes. Yeah. And I think this is really important because it shows that burnout isn't just from overwork. It's from other contributing factors as well. And the first one is a conflict in values. So that's when your personal goals aren't in line with those of your organization or your boss or managers telling you to do something that doesn't feel ethical. The second one is absence of fairness and anything that's tied to workload, pay, inappropriate handling of promotions, poor dispute resolution practices. The other one is workload, which we kind of understand pretty well, like the high demands and inadequate resources to do the job. Then the other one is reward, though. We're human beings. We like to know we're making progress. And if we're not getting rewarded, it doesn't have to be just financial. It's social acknowledgement or intrinsic reward that's going to take a toll. And then low social support, breakdown of community, or if you're an underrepresented person and you're the only one at your organization or you don't have a friend to confide in, that will take a toll as well. And then the last one is low levels of job control. So not given the appropriate level of responsibility or not having access to the tools that you need to do your job well. If you don't have control, you tend to give up and you feel helpless and that, that leads to learned helplessness. So if you can figure out oh, I'm feeling cynicism because I'm not getting rewarded. What can I do about that? What are my options? It's going to feel a lot better than just saying, I'm feeling cynical, let me work less. And maybe that's not the cause of the burnout. It could be, but there's, it's, it's much more multifaceted than just you know workload or exhaustion. Yeah, absolutely. And Jacinta, how does burnout happen? Because Greta and I have both experience burnout. We've both had glandular fever that has moved into chronic fatigue. I didn't see it coming myself. So how does it happen? Yeah. The wild thing about burnout is that it's not an on and off switch. It creeps up slowly on you. And it only until it's at the point where your body's screaming at you or you're really disrupting your functioning, you may not be able to catch it unless you're monitoring it persistently and consistently. And there's three core components of burnout. So there's the exhaustion. That's like where you, it's not just, oh, I I got a good night's sleep and I'm back at it. It's like where you can't, even if you get a good night's sleep, even if you go on vacation, even if you take even a little bit of time off, you just can't get going. And these people You'll hear it here to my clients say, like, I feel used up by the end of the workday. I feel emotionally drained by my work. Working all day is a real strain for me. The other component is cynicism. So this is when people become less interested in their work. Um, They used to be highly engaged, highly passionate, and just don't feel enthusiastic about it anymore. They, They say, I just don't want to be bothered. I want to do my job and be left alone. I don't even think my job's contributing to anything. And then the last piece of burnout is inefficacy. So that's feeling ineffective at being able to make progress at one's work. And so you'll hear it as like, I don't feel confident that I'm effective at getting things done. I can't effectively solve problems. I'm not doing great at my work. 
And this is really heartbreaking for me to see because these are typically people who are like the highest performers, highest engaged individuals. And so when these three components come together, that's when the research is found where burnout happens. And so if our listeners are sitting here listening and they're going, oh, actually, now you say it, I am feeling exhausted or I am feeling quite cynical or I am worried I'm not effective. What could they do right now to actually sort of check in with themselves or take some preventative action? The first thing I would say to them is, I'm so glad you just, you're, you're noticing it. Like that is half the battle sometimes is just recognizing where it's at. And then, you know, I tell people every Friday to sit down and just look at these three and think about, you know, where you land on them and just tracking it over time, just like we track our steps or we track our sleep or we track our blood pressure. We should be tracking how we're doing on these three areas. And then from there, what I recommend is digging into what's causing the burnout versus just thinking of burnout is just from overwork. Um, that's one contributor, but there, there's a multitude of factors that contribute to burnout. And the more specific you can get with figuring out what's causing the burnout, the more efficacious and more opportunities you're going to have to directly address it, whether that be go to your HR department, talk to your manager, figure out how to rest. You can figure out what's actually causing it to actually respond in the most efficacious way. And before we we move on from the book, I know that you dedicated the book to your grandmother, Mary, and for the letters that she wrote to you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah, my grandma, Mary, is so near and dear to my heart. She has since passed, but I think of her almost daily. She basically is the champion of my education. So my grandmother I mean, she's the example of ultimate meaning and purpose and how you can make meaning in your job because she only got to the eighth grade before her mother passed away and she had to go to work to support her family. And so she worked at a roadside motel as a maid, but she never saw herself as a maid. Her calling was never a maid. She saw herself, she created meaning out of her work by seeing herself as the champion of my education. I mean, every month, I kid you not, she would write me a letter about how proud she was of me and then put in that letter a $5 bill. And she did this all the way through my postdoctoral education, which is a lot of years and a lot of letters. Wow. It's incredible. And the, the memory of her at my graduation smiling is like the best memory. It's forever framed in my heart. And I, it shows you that you can craft meaning in everything you can do, you can find meaning. You don't have to search for it. You can make it. And it's so beautiful. Oh, I just love that. That's just such a beautiful story. That's really special. And, you know, I think it's also a great reminder that meaning doesn't have to be a grandiose saving the world. Sometimes the most powerful meanings look at the impact it's had on you and on us listening to that story when it's right on your doorstep and you find meaning there. Yeah, it's incredible. And so moving from your book, but really to, you know, you as a woman operating in the tech and science space. Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, yeah. Capital of the bros. That's right. (laughs) Capital of the bros. But also, you know, coming as a a Latino woman, you know, working in what's traditionally a white man's world. What have been the biggest challenges for you? Oh, that has been my kind of high and low. I think of my professional career has been this theme of belonging because, you know, 
my father's background and my, my family's education background. I remember stepping on as an undergraduate for the first time on the campus of Stanford University and feeling like, how do I fit in here? And I remember, you know, trying at first to cover parts of myself or fit in boxes that I did not belong in. And I found an a organization on campus uh, from El Centro Chicano called Unidas, which is like Women United, and, and we supported one another, but we also gave back to the community. But it was like this profound sense of belonging I got. But through, you know, going through, weaving through technology, academia, healthcare, and business, I have not felt like I belonged all the time. I have not seen many people in positions of power or leadership or professors that look like me or represented me. And that's been really challenging at times. Like, uh, just going, whoa, do I belong here? And I've struggled with imposter syndrome. and But it's also been this bright spot in some ways because I've come like around finally. It's been a work in progress it, and it hasn't been easy to realize the very thing that makes me feel like I don't belong is one of the biggest assets I bring to everything I do because I keep belonging at the forefront of my mind. So whether it's designing, sitting with a design team and wireframing out an incredible user experience, I'm thinking about how do we make it the most inclusive experience possible, whether I'm designing a leadership development program from the ground up, like how do we make psychological safety to make the leaders feel they can speak up and be honest? And if it's a global coach offering I'm designing, I'm like, how do we think about things being culturally competent? And I think the success of all these things have been grounded on the sense of thinking of belonging as that North star in terms of design principles. So it's been a high and a low for me, but ultimately something that I've come to really understand is so important. Yeah. As you say that, it's sort of really the epitome of why diversity is so key, isn't it? So, you know, we're coming to the end of our fantastic discussion, Jacinta. I'm really curious what your answer to this one will be. You know, it's something we ask all of our guests. You know, if you could go back in time to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give her? I would probably just be so compassionate with her. I think I would tell her the gift of self-compassion. That would be the main thing that you are your biggest caretaker, that speaking kindly to yourself and and self-love and self-compassion are so key and so important to prioritize in life, that that will lead to so much more than you can understand. Uh, That's uh, not always easy, but that's fantastic. So Jacinta, we've come to the end of our conversation. Thank you. It's been so fascinating to learn much more about you than we have in our more brief encounters uh, in the past to do with better up and coaching and leadership and things like that. If listeners are interested in finding out more about you and your book, The Burnout Fix, where should they go? They can go to my website, theburnoutfixbook.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn too. I post a lot of content on the latest science. Fantastic. We'll put those in the show notes as well. So it just remains to say thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate your time and best of luck with the book. And what a shame we can't say, hey, see you on that book tour in Australia (laughs) soon. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get you down here one of these days. Yes, yes. We have to make that happen. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for what you're doing and putting out in the world with 
your podcast. I am a, such a fan. I've been a listener from early on and so happy to be on here as a guest. Oh, thanks, Jacinta. And we are happy to have yeah. you, that's for sure. Thanks so much and take care. Thank you. Jacinta's burnout book couldn't have come out at a better time, what with the pandemic and all the fallout from that, could it? No, absolutely. And you know, I just love what she said about resilience, that it isn't about how you endure, it's about how you replenish and recharge. Yeah, it's a really fresh way of looking at resilience, because I think I've always thought about it as the marathon endurance test, so to speak. But yeah, it's about the replenish and recharge. I also really think it's useful, as she said, to track how you're feeling in terms of those three burnout telltale signs, your levels of cynicism, levels of exhaustion, and how effective you think you're being at work. Yeah, that's such a great tip. And I have to say, it was a surprise to me to learn about cynicism being a symptom. Yeah. You know, I'd always figured signs of burnout were mostly physical, but, you know, it makes complete sense, really, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you can read more about different tools and tips in Jacinta's new book, The Burnout Fix, available internationally from this week. So it's hot off the press. We'll link to that and its website in the show notes. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for a fascinating episode coming up with a woman who's helping nurture and support female entrepreneurs across many countries in Southeast Asia. And what a story she has. In the meantime, stay safe, speak out when you see injustice and ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.